Hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 7 as we continue in our study through the book of Esther. Esther chapter 7, and as you're making your way there, just by introduction, I'm going to tell you a story. The story is told. I have no idea whether it's true or not, and dads, as you hear the story, you can all agree with me that you can only hope it is, Uh, but the story is told of a guy who was standing in line at Starbucks to get a coffee. And uh, there's this punk kid in front of him, and this, this, this kid is talking to a friend of his, teenager, uh, and he's talking about a date that he's got later on that night. Date with this, this hot chick, and he's talking about, you know, all the stuff that he intends to do with this girl. And the guy, you know, is just sort of shocked and red-faced at the things that, that this kid would say publicly, uh, and uh, it, 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 it disturbs him, it bothers him. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, there he is. And, and the guy just leaves just saying, man, I can't believe this. And you probably know where I'm going with this. But later on that night, there's a knock at his door and this kid is showing up to pick up his daughter. Right. You know, that's, the <laughs> uh, needless to say that kid did not leave with that man's daughter that night or any other night. Uh, and, and the point is that our actions have consequences. Do they not? They do. Uh, Esther chapter 7, the big idea of this chapter is that there are consequences in life. And we're going to see several people facing consequences here in chapter 7. Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 and 8 says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And again, Esther 7, Esther chapter 7 stands as an example of this spiritual truth that you reap what you sow. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, I want to catch you up to speed here in uh, the book of Esther. Basically, what you've got is you've got a people, a group of people, the Israelites, who are really largely living in disobedience to God at this point in time. Uh, they, through disobedience, had been taken captive, uh, and, and they were now uh, held captive in the Persian Empire, and they were supposed to be there in captivity for 70 years. 70 years had come, 70 years had gone, and they themselves, they are still in captivity. Why? Well, because they had grown comfortable in their captivity. And so there in this place of captivity, in the land of their enemies, they'd become assimilated. They had compromised and they had become just like the, the, uh, the people that the, the land in which they dwelled, the people that were their enemies holding them, them captive. And so they'd, they'd become storekeepers. They, they just, they'd grown compromised in their walk. We've looked at this over the, over the last several weeks, uh, indeed the last uh, couple of months as we've been going through the book of Esther and just drawing some parallels, you know, talking about how We as Christians, we're called to come out from among them and be separate. And we're supposed to live lives that are different from the the world in which we live. Now, you can't get out of the world and it's a mistake as Christians to live your life in a Christian bubble. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, Greg Laurie says, last time I checked, you actually have to go into the field to reap a harvest, you know? And, and so we make a mistake as Christians when we isolate ourselves from the world and live lives in a bubble. But we also make a mistake when we get too 
much into the world and we become too much like the world and nobody can tell us apart from anybody else, right? And so we, as Christians, we're called to live a life that's very distinct. Well, the Israelites didn't. They had assimilated, they had compromised, and their compromise cost them. And so their 70 years had come, 70 years had gone, they're still living there. It's now 35 years later, they're still living in this, this lifestyle of compromise. Well, what happened is, in their compromise, uh, you had this, this king, King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus, he had uh, gotten rid of his queen because he threw this big party, a big drunken party. He called for his queen. He wanted her to come out, and she refused to come out. And so he got rid of her in her anger. Uh, and so now he's looking to replace her. And so he goes, and somebody makes the bright idea. Why don't you get all the, the beautiful virgins and bring them all into your harem, and you can pick one to be your replacement queen. And so there you've got this, this gal, Esther, and um, Esther along with who the guy who is, you know, he's her cousin, but he basically raised her like his, his own daughter. So and we'll just call him you know, her, her father, but Mordecai. They're living in compromise, and because they're in a place of compromise by not going back into the land like God wanted them to, now when this king goes looking for somebody, he takes Esther. Now, just because they had forgotten God doesn't mean that God had forgotten them. And so the book of Esther is a beautiful story of God's providence, how providentially he loves us. And oftentimes, despite our, our sin and despite all the things that we do, God moves and works providentially in our lives. He wants to draw us back to himself. And indeed, this is the story that happens in Esther. God moving, working, drawing. And, 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 and so Esther taken, but God sees to it that she receives favor. And so receiving God's favor with the king, he makes her his queen. And Mordecai ends up uh, being promoted to a position within the kingdom. And everything seems like, oh, it's all going great. But they're still in this place where they haven't repented and turned back to God. Uh, And so what happens is in their life, just like often happens in our life, God allows events to transpire to to produce, you know, as we would say, a come to Jesus moment in our lives. And so they have this moment where, well, there's this guy that gets promoted as the prime minister. And this is the evil Haman. And Haman is a guy who's a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, the sworn enemies of the Jews. And so King Haman, or not King Haman, but Haman, the, the, the prime minister, everybody bows down to him, but Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow down to Haman. Haman becomes so enraged, so angry, that he, he wants to kill not just Mordecai, he wants to kill all of the Jews. We're talking about 12 million Jews in the land at this time. And so Haman goes to the king, persuades the king to let him kill them all. And so faced with this reality, we see that the, that the, the nation of Israel has this time of, of mourning and of repentance. And again, this is a picture of what happens in our life so often is that, you know, God allows us in our rebellion to get to a place where we start suffering some consequences. Again, we're going to be looking at consequences today and God using those consequences to just wake us up. And so the consequences happen to Mordecai, to Esther, and man, they, they repent and they're fasting and Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, look, you got to go talk to the king. You got to see uh, if, if this, this sentence that he has passed, that he's authorized, 
he'll reverse it. And if you can get him to change his mind. And Esther says to, to Mordecai, she says, I can't go because I haven't been summoned. And anybody who appears before the king without having been summoned, it's a death sentence to them. And he says to her, basically, look, you're dead anyway. You know, don't think just because you're in the palace that you're going to escape just like, like, you know, because you're there in the palace, you're a Jew. You aren't escaping. They start killing Jews. They're going to kill you too. And he says, how do you know, Esther, that they haven't, that God hasn't put you there in the, in this spot for such a time as this? And so she says, okay, I'm going to go fast for me and I'm going to go. And, and she appears before the king. When she appears before the king, he extends to her the scepter. He gives her grace. And he, and he basically says, oh, you know, sweetheart, what can I do for you? Up to half of the kingdom, it's yours. And we explored this, how, you know, it would appear, wow, okay, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, Haman said this. Here's what's going on. Esther doesn't do that. See, what happened, and we looked at this in chapter 6, is that God works on a providential timing, on his providential timing. And what what we looked at last time we were here in in chapter 6, we looked at how you can either be on the blessing side of God's providential timing, or you can be on the breaking side of God's providential timing. See, Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purposes. And so what that means is that when you are a person who is surrendered to God, then what he will do in the blessing side of his providence is he will work all things together for good. Now that's not to mistake and and say that all things are good. Not all things are good. We, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And oftentimes the things that we have to endure are at the hands of sinful men and women, are the consequence of sin. And so oftentimes we have to deal with some things that are decidedly not good. But the promise to the believer is that God will use it. He will work it for your good. It may not be good right now, but in time, only God can take that, which is a train wreck, and use it for good. Amen? And so that is the promise. And so what happens in, in, the, in Esther's life is that as she humbled herself in love for her God, what happened is she positioned herself to discern God's leading and God's moving and God's working in her life. And so there, as she goes before the king and he says, oh, hey, baby, what can I do for you? I give it, I'll, I'll give it to you. Well, she now, she's in this yielded place where she's hearing this, this discernment, this, this leading, this prompting of the Lord to say, no, not yet, Esther, don't, 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 don't say anything yet. And so she says, oh, you know what, just come to a, come to a banquet that I'm going to throw for you. Bring Haman along. Okay, he comes, he brings Haman. And again, the king says to her, sweetie pie, what can I do for you? You know, it just up to half the king, I'll give it to you, baby, what do you want? And again, she's here in this place, surrendered to God. She's, she's repented. She's been fasting. She's now sensitive in tune with God's providential timing. And so being in that place, surrendered to God, loving God in terms of, oh man, I've repented and now I'm just listening. Well, now she discerns, hey, it's not the right time. Don't go, don't say anything. So she said, hey, come back tomorrow. Well, she doesn't realize it at the time. There's no understanding this. I mean, it's like, hey, you've had it, you know, on a silver platter, two, two golden opportunities there. Hey, what can I do for you? And no, the, the Lord just told me to wait. 
Well, she had no way of knowing it at the time, but what God had, had ordained for the king that very night was that he would have insomnia and not be able to sleep. And so having insomnia, not being able to sleep, he calls for, hey, bring in the log books, read the history to me, you know, and nothing like history to put you to sleep, you know, so just read the chronicles of my kingdom to me. And they start reading him the story uh, about what Mordecai had, Mordecai had done. But see, because right after Esther had been promoted to queen, Mordecai had been promoted to a position at the gate, overheard a couple of the king's uh, servants conspiring to kill the king. And so Mordecai told Esther, Esther told the king in Mordecai's name and the servants were taken care of. And, and so the, the, the guys read this account to, to, uh, to King Ahasuerus and he says, well, wait a minute. What did we do for Mordecai? They're like, zilch, nada, nothing. Got, he, he didn't give him nothing. Oh, that's a big problem in, in this culture. And, you know, in, in, in this, this kingdom, in, the, in the, 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 the East like this, it's like everything's based on reward or consequences, you know? And so to not reward somebody is a huge slight. It's a huge oversight. So the king's like, man, that, that, we need to take care of that right now. Well, now we look at Haman. Esther, being this person who's completely submitted to the Lord and operating, you know, humbly and being providentially moved and and discerning, hey, it's not time, and God not filling her in on all the details, just knowing, hey, you need to wait, and so all of those events transpiring, God's going to use for the good uh, for her and for her people as they repent. Well, now you've got Haman. Haman in his pride and in his self-love, well, he's operating on his own path and in his own timing. And he's got this plan where, man, I want to just see this guy killed and murdered because he won't bow down to me. And everybody knows that, you know, I'm all this great guy. He's just completely, profoundly in love with himself. You ever, you know a person like that? You know, maybe you work for that person or whatever, and they're just completely, everything revolves around them. And their whole life is upset because everybody didn't get the memo that they're awesome, you know? And so this, so this is, this is Haman. I see all my staff going, yeah, we got the, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I hope I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so this is Haman, man. He's all in love with himself and he's operating on his own, uh, his own agenda. And so whereas you've got Esther, you know, on the blessing side of God's timing, what you have in Haman is he's on the breaking side of God's timing. And so Haman, in his anger and his fury, he decides, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to erect a gallows to, to kill Mordecai. And you know what, tomorrow morning before the banquet, that the, we're going back to Esther's house, I'm going to hit the king up and I'm going to see if he'll let me hang Mordecai on the gallows. Now, we think of a gallows like, you know, they string up a rope, you know, and pin a note to your chest and, you know, there you are. That's, that's not the deal. They, they would sharpen a stake and they would take one guy with one leg and another guy with the other leg and they would have you have a seat and then they would just slowly pull you down. I mean, that's, that's horrible and awful to think about, but that's what it was. So he had a, a gallows, 75 feet tall, 50 cubits, built in his, in his backyard. I'm going to have a you know, very public execution of my enemy, operating on his own evil agenda. And so he goes to talk to the king. But again... He is on the breaking side of God's timing because it's all about him, not about the king. And so when he walks into the king's, uh, you know, to the palace to hit the king up to, hey, can, would it be okay if I killed, you know, Mordecai? 
you know, well, what he doesn't realize is God providentially moving, working, giving the king insomnia, having the records recorded, having him remember, hey, Mordecai saved your life, and we didn't do anything to reward him. So Haman comes, he's going, hey, wait a minute, who's, who's out there? Well, it's Haman, perfect. My prime minister, bring him in. And so Haman walks in, he says, hey, uh, Haman, I got a question for you, king speaking to him. Hey, you know, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? Now, what does a profoundly self-centered man think at that point? It's me. Who else would he want to honor more than me? I'm awesome. He got the memo. Sweet. So he says, well, you know, here's what I would like to happen. And so he starts telling him, hey, you know, you should dress the guy up in, in royal robes that only you have worn and put him on your horse, you know, and with the, with the crown and all the stuff that the horse wears, the equivalent of, you know, the president getting in his limo with the, the flags and the seal on there, and, you know, and basically have one, your highest official cart him around and say to everybody, this is what is to be done for the man to whom the king delights to honor. And, uh, and so this is, you know, the desire of Haman's heart now coming out. And so the king says, that is a great idea. Go and do so for Mordecai the Jew. He's like, oh gosh, I can't wait. No, for Haman. No, for Mordecai the Jew. And so God is breaking Mordecai or breaking Haman in this way. So this is providentially what God has been doing and in God's timing. And, and so where we left off was Mordecai come, or uh, Haman comes home crying the blues to his wife and to all of his friends. And he's like, oh, I went to go ask him if he could kill him. And then now I had to parade him around. I'm so humiliated. And they basically go, well, you're toast. If that guy's a Jew and that's what happened, you know, you're toast. So verse 14 of chapter six, we finished off while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went to dine with queen Esther, this providential timing of God now coming to a head. Verse two, And on the second day, at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, third time now, that he said this, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Sweetheart, okay, I'm ready to take care of you. Just let me know, I'm gonna take care of it. Verse three, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Look, if we would have just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have said anything, but they're planning on killing 12 million Jews, and it's going to be a huge loss to you. And I don't have this in my notes, but it just reminds me recently, I was reading an article on abortion. And there's a huge argument of, look, abortion makes tremendous financial success because, you know, uh, financial sense because, you know, basically 50 million people lives have been aborted since abortion was legal uh, and, and, you know, give or take a few million. Uh, and, you know, financially, um, you know, just because of the demographic of those that were aborted, they would have been on public assistance anyway. And so think all the money that we've been saving right? And, and an economist, a Christian economist actually 
took a, took a swing at this to kind of, you know, just sort of think through this. And just going on purely on statistical figures determined that um, a very strong case can be made for the insolvency of, of Social Security on the loss of the income that would have been generated by the millions and millions of, of lives that have been aborted. Uh, and of course, you know, there's, there's a lot more stronger moral arguments for why abortion uh, should, should be an atrocity and, and, and illegal in our country. But just from a purely economic standpoint, uh, there, again, a very real case made for just the huge loss that has happened financially and the negative financial impact from such, a, from such a horrible, horrible atrocity that we have allowed. And so Esther's saying the same thing here. Basically, he's saying, she's saying, you know, if we would have just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have said anything, but they're talking about killing 12 million Jews, and, and, and it would have been a horrible loss to the king. That's what she's saying in verse 4. Verse 5, so King Ahasuerus answered, and he said to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now, first point I want to make, if you're, if you're writing down notes, the first example of consequences in chapter 7 of Esther is Esther herself. This is the first example of, comp- uh, of, of, uh, of consequences. See, because, again, remember... What's transpired in her life to get her there? Yes, she's in the situation where she's on the blessing side now of God's providential timing. She's humbled herself. She's, she's repented of the sin. But what was the sin that put her in this situation in the first place? The sin was that the Jews disobeyed God and did not return to the land like God had commanded them. Instead, they stayed put in the the land of their enemy. They'd grown comfortable in the land of their enemy, and they had, in fact, compromised in that land. And so the, the consequence is that Esther now is facing annihilation because she had compromised. And, and likewise, I would say this to each one of us here today. There are many of you here today that compromise in your life has resulted in profound consequences. Maybe even today as you're here and, you're, and you're, we're going through this and I, and I talk about consequence, immediately the Holy Spirit bringing into your mind the consequence perhaps that you're going through right now. Because, you know, you... you were disobedient to God, that there was a situation in your life where you went somewhere that God told you not to go, or you stayed somewhere where God told you not to stay, and you've suffered the consequences, perhaps in your marriage. Maybe you've suffered the consequence in your relationship with your kids, because, man, I I, I compromised, and now I'm dealing with consequences. Maybe you've had some consequences to your reputation, Maybe because you've compromised, you know, in, in terms of your stewardship of the way you handle finances, that you're facing some serious consequences today. Some of you, you know, you've, you've lost your house. Some of you are losing your house because you've made compromising decisions financially. I'll never forget years ago, Brenda and I, we were, we were on our way home from Disneyland. Uh, she, we were, okay, it's, we stopped it to buy a car on our way home from Disneyland, right? I mean, it was, and we left Disneyland. Here's a funny part. She got sick in the line. We're waiting in line for the jungle boat, and it's kind of warm, and she passes out. And at the time, we're thinking, you know, gosh, are you pregnant, or what's going on, you know? And we're all worried, and, uh, you know, it's just last week, and I was, you know, I'm kidding. 
that would be a miracle. So, so uh, anyway, so the paramedics came out. It was like a really crazy thing. The paramedics come out and, you know, they take us back and everybody's looking at you and they wheel you through Disneyland. There's my wife, you know. And, and so she gets you know, in the air conditioning. She's now in the air conditioning of the car. We're driving home. We live, you know, in, in uh, Marina Valley at the time. And so we're, you know, we're going down the 91 freeway and passing, you know, the, the car dealerships there. And now she's, you know, reclined in air conditioning. And now my neighbor down the street had just bought a new truck and I was coveting his new truck. I got it. I was fine. The car that I had was, was just a couple of years old but I was coveting his truck. I was in sin. I compromised. And so what I said to my wife was, hey, honey, are you feeling okay? Because I want to stop and look at cars. She'd just been treated by the paramedics an hour before, you know. Honey, let's go by and look at cars. She's like, you know, okay. We closed the dealership down, them like working to get us into this truck. And you know when you make a really bad car decision? A really bad one, right? And you get upside down on that sucker, and it's like you got to get it's three cars to get out from underneath that bad deal, right? That was this situation. I woke up the next morning. I'm like, what did we do? I made the worst mistake in the world. Compromise. And what happens is we compromise, and man, when we compromise, there are profound consequences. And this is what's going on with Esther. Esther's in this situation to begin with because of their compromise. It's been said that sin is pleasurable for a season, but the season is always too short, right? And what I want you to notice is that that indeed is true. That's why they're in the situation in the first place. But she had humbled herself. She had repented. She had fasted. And so now she is in the blessing side of God's providential will. He is going to work all things together for good. Yes, it's true. She does face this immediate consequence of having to beg for her life because of the compromise that she's made. But she has done what is indicated in that she's humbled herself. And she, you know, the the, the issue is, well, as you look at, at chapter four of Esther, truly has repented of the sin. 1 John 1, 9, this is important, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It says this, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's the point. Some of you are facing consequences today. And in the facing of your consequences, the enemy wants you to give up. The enemy wants you to get to the place where you're completely defeated and you just completely roll over. And, and, I, and I mentioned this issue of Esther, this obvious issue of Esther to say, look, yes, she's facing a consequence, but look, she humbled herself. And now what's happening is that God is graciously and favorably going to be working in her life. And it can be the exact same way for you. You can find favor in the sight of the king through confession and through repentance. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but the story is told about King David. You know, the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And King David in 2 Samuel 11, well, everybody's out fighting in the battle as they're supposed to, and David stayed home. 
And he went for a walk on the roof. And it's interesting as you study it in the, in, in the Hebrew, as he went for a walk, it, it means that he meandered uh, to walk without aim or purpose. And what happens when we walk without aim and purpose, we get ourselves into a heap of trouble. It's exactly what happened in David's life. And so his next door neighbor, she's out taking a bath and he looks and he looks again and he calls for her and they shack up. She gets pregnant and now he's like, uh-oh, what am I gonna do? So, well, you know, just to make things horribly worse, as if that can't be worse enough, her husband's one of his soldiers. He's out fighting. So he says, man, get Uriah home. Bring him back. Let's talk to him. Hey, Uriah, how's the war going? Like he cares. How's the war going? Well, it's going fine. We're fighting and everything's good. Okay, hey, why don't you go home? You know, go home. Enjoy your wife. He's hoping they'll, you know, they'll get busy and then he'll be able to say, oh, it's not my kid, you know. And So, no, you know what? Um... He's got too much integrity for that. He stays with the soldiers there at the, at, at the palace. Word comes to David the next day, day you know, hey, Uriah didn't go home. He's like, oh, hey, wait, hey. So what's he do? He gets him drunk now. Brings him back in, gets him all liquored up. Hey, you know, why don't you go home to your wife? He's got too much integrity. And here's what he says. He goes, how can I go home and enjoy my wife when, when my brothers are, are out on the battlefield fighting? And, you know, that had to just hit David in the gut. I mean, think about it. Here's your soldier who says, I, I can't go home. All my brothers are out fighting. How can I go and join my wife? And David would say, oh, gosh, all my, you know, yeah, all you guys are out fighting. How could I enjoy your wife? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. So he has him killed. That's how he covers it up. He has him killed and then, you know, passes himself off on, oh, you know what? Let me take Bathsheba as my wife. And poor guy, my soldier got killed. I'll take her as my wife, you know? And he thinks he can cover it up that way. And the the text is very clear to say, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And maybe your sin isn't that serious. Maybe you haven't done, you know, you haven't killed somebody. You haven't committed adultery. I don't know, maybe you have. But whatever it is, I know this. I know that when I have sinned against the Lord, it haunts me. You experience that? It just haunts you. And we actually don't have time to do this, but I don't have time not to. Turn to to Psalm 51. So in Psalm 51, we've got this account of what's going on in David's heart. He has committed this, this atrocity. He has sinned against the Lord in this way, and his conscience is killing him. And so here's what he says, Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1, his cry to the Lord, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Here's what he says, guys. He says, God, I, there's nothing that I can do to make this right. I can't make it right. And so I can't appeal to you on any other basis other than you need to do this work. I need your loving kindness. I need the multitude of your tender mercies, God. I, that's, that's the only basis. And guys, listen, 
That's the only basis that any of us can come to the Lord. And that's the thing is that Satan works you and he gets you to compromise and then you begin, you, you begin to suffer consequences. There's a multitude of consequences for David. He covered the whole thing. Everything's under the rug. The consequences for him is that this thing is like a brick wall on my shoulders. I can't bear it. I hate myself. I can't believe that I've done this. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in a place where you say, I can't bear this. And David says, Lord, all I can say is have mercy on me according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies. He says, verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And listen, if you're here today and you're separated from God by your sin, that is your only hope, my friend is that God would wash you thoroughly from your sin. There's not, you can't help enough old ladies across the street to redeem the sin that you have committed. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself right except for to say, Lord, I need you to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. He says, verse three, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I can't get away from this and I'm confessing it. confessing it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess means to agree with God. Lord, I agree with you. I'm a sinner and I've blown it and I confess it. Purge me, wash me, cleanse me. And he goes on in verse, skip down to verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit, he says. He says down in verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 16, he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not, do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David says this, he says, listen, I, it's not about offering. It's not about saying, God, I blew it and I'm gonna do this to make it up for you. He says, the only thing, the only thing that I can do, man, it's, it's about a broken spirit. It's about a broken and a contrite heart. It's about me coming to you and saying, God, I'm not going to whitewash it. I'm not going to cover over it. I'm just going to confess, God, have mercy on me. I blew it. I'm a sinner and I own that. And I do the only thing that I can do. I, 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 I have a contrite heart and a broken heart and I confess it and I surrender it to you and I say, Lord, forgive me. Some of you need to do that today. Some of you are in the place where you need to confess to God, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. And I'll be giving you an opportunity at the end of the service to, to, to just to, to make that confession. Back in Esther chapter 7, the second example of consequences that we see is found in King Ahasuerus. You'll notice, and I'll pick it up in verse 3. It says, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. 
For we've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy would never compensate for the king's loss. And so King Ahasuerus answered and said, now listen to his answer, because he's clueless. He answers and he says to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? It is clear from the king's answer that he absolutely is not putting two and two together. He can't figure it out. He's like, what? What are you talking about? Who is he? Where is he? What are you talking about? Now, turn back to Esther chapter 3 real quick. And let's just, let's just review how he got here. Start in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow to him homage, pay him homage, he was filled with wrath, right? Verse 8. So Haman said to the king, Hasherus, Hey, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people and they do not keep the king's laws. First part was true. Second part was not true. Most lies are packaged that way. And so he says, hey, they don't, they, you know, they got their own laws and everything and they don't keep your laws. That's a lie. They, do, they were keeping the king's laws. He twisted it. He says, therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. Hey, king, they're... they're not keeping your laws. Now, what is Haman's big beef? This little man, this little Jewish man wouldn't bow down to me. And so I am so proud and I'm so angry. I'm going to kill him and his entire, all of his descendants. I'm going to kill 12 million people because I am that angry. So I'm going to package it in such a way and sell it to the king. So he kills 12 million people. So he says, verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So he sweetens the pot to get the king to go along with it. He basically says, look, they don't, they don't, they don't pay, obey your laws. You shouldn't let them live. Let's, 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 enter, let's pass an edict, have everybody kill them, plunder all their stuff. They can keep a finder's fee, but the rest of their possessions are going to go right into your bank account. They're going to offset. You just had a four-year war with, with Greece, and you lost. And so it's going to offset all that, and you're going to get money in your bank account. See, he totally manipulates the situation. Verse 10, so king, the king took his signet ring, uh, from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agathite, the enemy of the Jews. Basically, this is like the rubber stamp that's got his signature on it. Gives him the signet ring. They would pass an edict. They would seal it in wax. The signet ring would go on top of it. That's the king's signature. And so he gives him this. And here's what he says, verse 11. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day. And they wrote the whole thing out. Here's my point. The king was lazy. He didn't have a clue. And here's what I want you guys to hear. And, and men, this one's for you. Ladies, you get to sit this one out. Although the Holy Spirit may make application in your heart. But, but men, I need, I need your attention. The second example of consequences that we have in our text is King Ahasuerus was lazy. 
And because he was lazy, because he didn't do his due diligence, he didn't exercise any due diligence, he didn't do any work to investigate Haman's accusations, he didn't have a clue who the people were that he was talking about or the ramifications that would happen to him. That it would kill 12 million of his subjects, have a profound negative impact on his kingdom, and one of those people would be his very queen who he loved with all of his heart. He didn't have a clue. And here's the application for you men. When you are lazy, there will be consequences. See, God's called you as men to be leaders. He's called you to lead your home. He's called you to lead your children. He's called you to be leaders in your workplace. He's called you to be leaders in your community. And when, like King Ahasuerus, you just sort of live your life and you let somebody tell you something and you just sort of swallow it hook, line, and sinker and you really don't pass you know, any sort of you know, test to kind of figure it out, you don't think through it, there's consequences. Think about this. I talk to guys all the time. They can tell me everything about their favorite sports team. You know, all the stats. This guy was quarterback, but he shouldn't have been quarterback because this guy, he's, he had this many completions and, and all, and this is why he... But they can't tell me the first thing about what's going on with their wives. They, they don't have a clue. Honey, what are you struggling with? What's your big challenge right now? Hey, spiritually speaking, what's God doing in your heart? They don't know. I have guys... Their kids hanging out, they couldn't, they couldn't name three of their, of their kids' friends. I, I, don't, I don't know their names. Really. You don't know. You don't know who's taking your daughter out. You don't know who she's talking to on the phone. Your kid says, hey, can I spend the night over at so-and-so's house? And you don't know their parents. I mean, this, stuff, this, is, this is unfathomable to me. And Megan was telling Brenda a story the other day, and I don't have time to get into it, but basically it was along these lines, and, and it was concerning these people and, and the decisions they were making for their daughter. <coughs> I've never met this woman in my life. I've met her, never met her daughter in my life. I was freaking out for her daughter, and she's not. Man, we need to be leaders. We need to understand. We need to have a finger pull on the pulse of what's going on. We need to be aware. And see, there's consequences when you don't, and I see it all the time. I mean, people come in, I had a guy the other day, you know, my wife's filed for divorce, I never saw it coming. He didn't have a clue. Didn't know, it was just completely, and for her, you know, her side of the story, years. Years. Falling on deafness. Just the guy didn't have a clue. And so we need to know. We can't be lazy. Absolutely have to be on top of it. All right, let's move on. Third final point, and we will be quick about this. What's the final example of consequences in our text in Esther chapter 7? It's Haman, right? It's, this, this is right here. This is the big E on the I chart. Who faced consequences in chapter 7? Well, it's Haman. Verse 6. And Esther said, the adversary, the enemy, because the king said, well, who is this? Where, who is he? Where is he who would dare to do this? Esther says, verse 6, the adversary, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. And so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and he went into the palace garden. Why did he do that? Because this now that he's connecting the dots, and he realizes, oh, whoa, wait a minute. I did this. This is, my, I, this is on me. He's just now getting a clue, 
right? And so he, 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 he's got to absorb all this. He arises, he goes into the, bank, into the palace garden, but Haman, verse 7, goes on to say, stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. And this is what bullies always end up. Here's the big bad Haman wanted to kill 12 million Jews, and now all of a sudden it's all hitting the fan, and he's like, oh, please, please, he's groveling. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king, verse 8, and when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? You're going to assault my wife while I'm right here, right in my very presence. One ancient writer in an ancient Jewish publication, uh, he puts out and and says that uh, uh, the uh, angel Gabriel actually pushed Haman down uh, at this point. There's nothing biblical to support that, but it's kind of funny to think about. Anyways, will he even assault the queen while I'm in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You know what that means? That's an executioner's hood that they stuck on him. That, my friends, is a speedy trial right there. You're going to right here in front of me? You're a dead man, man. It's happening right there. Now, Harbana, verse 9, one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, The gallows, 50 cubits high, 75 feet tall, uh, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf. Now, you're getting the impression that Harbana didn't like Haman. (laughs) This is going down, and he's like, oh, look, guess what Haman built in his backyard? (laughs) A little handy, too. It might help you. And by the way, he, he built it to kill Mordecai, the guy few hours ago, remember you wanted to honor the guy that saved your life, that Mordecai? Yeah, Haman was going to kill him, 75-foot gallows, at Haman's house. And I don't know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we got a hood on the guy and all. And, uh, you know, why not use it on him? It's standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, hang him on it. Now, I don't, just, it concerns me. This is my favorite part of the entire book of Esther. <laughs> Right here, just a glimpse into my heart. Hang him on it, right? I could read that all day. Hang him on it, yes! So they hanged Haman on the gallows, verse 10, that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's wrath subsided. All right. That can be my favorite part all day long. But who's Haman? He's us. Remember? Haman is a picture of our sinful flesh. And you remember that, and then you don't enjoy that quite that much. Hang him on it. Because, man, when you point one finger at somebody else, you got three fingers pointing back at you. I'm a sinner. That's me. That is me in my unrepentant, sinful state. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. See, in Matthew chapter 15, I won't have you turn there for time's sake. I'll just judge a shorthand for you. Jesus, he's, he's talking, you know, to his disciples and, and, uh, and the, the Pharisees, they, they come up and they say, hey man, why don't you, your disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And, and that's, that, that violates the, tr- the, the laws. That, that violates our tradition. 
And Jesus says, you want to talk about your tradition? You know, you're all upset with my, with my disciples not washing their hands before they eat. How about this? How about you don't honor your father and your mother? Because you take your possessions and you say, you know what? All my possessions are dedicated to God, which is something they would do. So, and they did this not, not to be so spiritual and dedicate their lives, their stuff to God. They did it so they didn't have to share with their parents when they were in need. They wanted to keep everything for themselves. And so they would say, you know, all my money, my house, all my belongings, they're all dedicated to God. Mom, dad, I'd like to help you. I see your need and all, but I've dedicated all I have to God. And Jesus called him on it and he says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're going to live like that. And so he goes and he says, listen, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. That's what defiles you. And so Peter comes to him later and he goes, hey, you know, you really upset the, the Pharisees when you said this. And Jesus basically says, what do I care? You know, they're, they're blind guides and they're going to fall off a cliff. And the people that follow them, they're going to go off a cliff as well. And, and Peter goes, yeah, but I don't understand that. You know, what goes into your mouth doesn't defile you, but it's what comes out of your mouth. That's what defiles I don't get that part. And Jesus said, listen, let me, let me explain that to you. And he started talking. He says, look, out of your heart, that it comes murder out of your heart. It comes deceitful thoughts out of your heart. Blasphemies come out of your heart. This is what comes out of your heart. And this is what we see with Haman. This is what we see, that what comes out of the, the, the gallows, 75 feet tall in his yard. It's that heart of hatred. It's that heart of anger. It's that heart of bitterness. And I ask you this morning, what is in your heart? What's there? The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And here's what we need to see as we close. And there's so much more I'd like to say here. Um, chapter 10 basically tells us that it was the death of a substitute that satisfied the wrath of the king. It was the death of a substitute that satisfied the wrath of the king. And in the case of Esther, chapter 7, in the case of Mordecai and Haman, it was the guilty dying in the place of the innocent. But I, what I want you guys to focus on today is that for us, because we're all Haman, listen, what satisfies the wrath of the king is that the innocent died in the place of the guilty. Listen, you're right before God because Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is life through Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that for us, we need to believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. And so what I want to challenge you with here today as we close, because it's, it's no argument, we are Haman. I want to challenge you with this thought. Where are you at with God? Because there is a gallows that has been prepared. And Jesus can be hung on that gallows for you if you'll believe in him and trust in him. And some of you here today, you know that, you've done that. But man, like David, there's a place where you just need to surrender and you need to come back to the Lord and you need to say, Lord, I've, I've sinned. And I confess it. And I want to move on in obedience with you. Some of you, you haven't done that. 
And so as we close now in prayer, I want to give you the opportunity, wherever you're at with the Lord. Maybe you don't know him. And I would say today you can. And the enemy would tell you, look, you've done too much. You've lived you know, a way that there's no hope for you. There is. You settle it today. You can say, God, I have no basis to come to you and ask for your forgiveness. But I've done nothing to deserve it. But like David, I'm going to come and I'm going to ask you, would you forgive me? And if you honestly ask and honestly repent in that way, Jesus Christ will forgive you. He'll come in. He'll cleanse you. He will make you a new creation. If you're here and you've done that, but you're not living like it and you need to confess, I'm going to give you that opportunity as well. And you can walk out these doors in newness of life.